Psalm 110. Let's read it through. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men across or over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Wow. Father, be praised in this. And Jesus, I ask, help us to see You clearly in this psalm. In Jesus' name. Amen. On a hot summer day, July 21st, 1993, Gila Cook was packing up her equipment at an excavation site in the far north of Israel. The lead archaeologist, Professor Avraham Biran, was impatient to get back to Jerusalem. It had been a long day. But as she was dismantling a tripod, she noticed a a basalt stone stela. It's on the southern end of a wall by the outer gate. And in her own words, she wrote, In this brief interval, my mind registered what I had seen. I looked again and said to myself, Oh, these are Hebrew or Phoenician letters. It's an inscription with a row of characters. As she approached Professor Baran, she wanted to say, I'm going to make your day. All she could muster was, Come. Baran followed her to the wall, knelt knelt down, and very quietly said, Oh, my God. And he wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain. He was stunned at the discovery. You see, Abraham Baran, his name is forever connected to this particular excavation, this archaeological dig site in the north of Israel, a place called Tel Dan. And his team discovered Tel Dan, and they had been working in Tel Dan for 27 years to this point. I read an earlier, uh, earlier this week an article with him saying they were about to close down the dig after 19 seasons. And had he done so, they never would have discovered what was found on that day. Until 1993, think about that. Until 1993, there had never been conclusive evidence outside the Bible itself that a king named David ever existed. Liberal scholars all said David was the stuff of Hebrew mythology. A made-up king. Truly never was a a young man who, who bested a giant. I mean, come on. You know, one who could write songs like him and fight like him at the same time. Come on. There's never really been a a David. Maybe he's just the personification of of the great kings of Israel. But there on a stone monolith called Astila, it was an inscription to a military victory of a king of Damascus written back in the 9th century. So about 100 years after David was king, and it's called the Tel Dan Sila or the Tel Dan inscription. And it's in ancient Aramaic. And what they saw that day as they read those words included both the phrases King of Israel and House of David. Bayit David. 
And so for the first time, here came this external evidence, this proof written again on a military victory of, a, of a, an Aramaic king, not even a king of Israel, talking about a battle that, that we know about in Scripture where he had taken down the kings of Judah and, and, and the king of Samaria or, or king of Israel. And it referenced this particular king of Israel of the house of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, David called himself the son of Jesse, the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet or the singing psalmist of Israel. We start with David because to divorce David from Psalm 110 is to deny its validity in the Scriptures. I've said before, if you deny Jesus in the Scriptures, you might as well rip out these passages. And to deny that David wrote Psalm 110 as as clearly evidenced in the psalm. In fact, David, or, or Derek Kigner, says nowhere in the Psalter does so much hang on the familiar title, a psalm of David, as it does here. And if you look at it, you even see it's, it begins with a psalm of David. That's the first line in the Hebrew, but there's no break between that and the very first verse. The line of authorship and the beginning of the psalm are one sentence, so it would read a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord. David is declaring what he's hearing. And it's clear and it's obvious. And again, Kidner says... To amputate this opening phrase or to allow it no reference to the authorship of the psalm is to be at odds with the entire New Testament, which finds King David's acknowledgement of his Lord highly significant. David is declaring in this psalm what he has heard. And Jesus himself gave David the full authorship of Psalm 110. But for his part, David, as Israel's greatest king, looked to a king far greater than himself, was aware of one coming who was far beyond. This psalm is at the highest peak. This is the summit of the Savior's psalms. And as it begins, we join David listening in on a most divine and royal declaration. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the Hebrew, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Donai. It's an abbreviated form of of Adonai. The Lord, God, says to my Lord, Jesus. Father, speaking to Son. We know this because the New Testament quotes Psalm 110, or refers to it, some 25 times. More than any other psalm. There are nine word-for-word direct quotes. Now, Psalm 118 that we're going to do Wednesday night has 12 direct quotes. So it has a few less direct quotes of this psalm. And yet at the same time, the references to this psalm overwhelm the others. The direct quotes are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, there are 12 quotes or allusions alone. The New Testament rides oftentimes on Psalm 110. It's so significant. But more than that, our eternity hangs on the imperial subject of this little seven-verse psalm. Well, there are psalms much, much longer. Go read Psalm 119 if you have a week. 
You know, there, there are psalms that are big and wordy. I, I was thinking about this this morning. I, I got turned on to the music of Jack Johnson several years ago. Just the style and the, and the lyrical, the way he writes. I, I always loved that. Very acoustical uh, guy out of, a Hawaii, uh, out of Hawaii. And um, Jack Johnson has this way of writing songs that are like 40 seconds long. If you look on some of his albums, it's interesting. There's a song list there. It's like 18 songs and it's a single album. How does he do that? And then you find there are several songs that are like 45 seconds, a minute. And I would listen to those songs and they would start and they would finish. And at the end of the song, I'd say, wow. I mean, Jack, add something to it, bro. Throw in a chorus. You got an entire song. And I began to realize he'd said all he wanted to say. Psalm 110 says all that is needed to be said. In seven little verses, written halfway into human history by David 3,000 years ago. I'd like you to turn over to Matthew 22, a place we've gone many times related to this psalm. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, Mashiach, Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. See, they knew who David was. The son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said or says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus said, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, Jesus was always great at asking the questions nobody wanted to ask. Can I encourage you to do that? Ask the hard questions in the Bible and don't be afraid of getting an answer that's going to undermine the truth of Scripture. You won't. I think at times, probably the rabbis, the Pharisees would would have verses, read verses like this, and maybe in the back of their mind they'd say, the Lord says to my Lord, well, who's that? I'm not going to deal with that. It's overwhelming. It's too much. Jesus just blurts it right out. What's he talking about there? Because the Word of God is here to instruct us of God. And if it is, in fact, as I believe... God breathed every word of every verse of every chapter of every book. Why would I be worried about asking the tough questions? Why would we avoid any of the hard scriptures? And so Jesus goes right to it. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? (laughs) No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Why? Because Jesus leveled the Pharisees. With two unequivocal truths. Number one, that Psalm 110 is indeed Davidic. But number two, that Messiah in this Psalm must be divine. Messiah is on a plane, on a level with God. The Lord says to my Lord. And the two interact in the seven verse Psalm so intimately and so intricately, they must be one. Messiah is God. David had no mere mortal in view. But you might ask as we start this, when did this take place? David heard it 3,000 years ago, thus he wrote it 3,000 years ago. When did it happen? Mark 16 verse 9 says, When the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven 
and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 2.34, Peter said, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter said, It was when he ascended. This conversation happened following the ascension of Jesus back to heaven as he sat down at the right hand of God. That's when God made the the declaration, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's when the Lord said to my Lord. So the conversation happened 2,000 years ago after Jesus ascended. Then how could David have heard it 3,000 years ago, long before Jesus even descended? He ascended to heaven, the conversation happened, but David had already heard it, already written it down a 1,000 years before. Hey, that's called prophecy. That's what prophecy is. The Lord saying what's going to happen at the end from the beginning. The Lord declaring and giving insight and ear to hear these things ahead of time. And remember, Yahweh is I am. He's not I was. He's not I will be. He is I am, which is he was and he is and he is to come. He's always he's he's in the moment. He resides outside of time, which means he's not limited by clock or calendar like we are. Outside of time. In heaven, Jesus ascended. This conversation happens. Outside of time. David heard it at this point in time. For us, it would be a thousand years later that we would know that Jesus was crucified and resurrected and then ascended to heaven. For David, he heard it because it happened when Jesus ascended. Can you even kind of get a bead on that? Maybe triangulate it a little bit that here on earth, 3,000 or or 1,000 B.C., And then at B.C., 32, 33 A.D., and Jesus ascends, the conversation happens, David overheard it over here. Are you with me? I I just don't think it's that hard to understand. (laughs) Because God's got all the time in the world. Which means I can go as long as I want this morning. Doesn't bother him a bit. But if you struggle with this kind of thing, with the supernatural nature of this greatest of the Savior Psalms, you need to know one thing, and that is that Jesus and His apostles had no other view. David heard this psalm and wrote it down. Jesus experienced the conversation a thousand years later, earth time. Created time. So Jesus goes up to heaven, triumphantly resurrected from the earth, and the Father says, the Lord says to my Lord, take a seat, son. Sit at my right hand. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 12, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when you sit, if you'd like to be comfortable, you kick off your shoes, and then it's nice to have a footstool, somewhere to rest your feet. 
the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So his enemies would be Ottomans, not Turks, (laughs) but Ottomans. You could say it this way, his enemies would be poofs. Now, brothers, let me inform you on this. Your wives probably already know what a poof is. I have my own idea of what a poof was, but a poof is a, it's a footstool. It's an overstuffed, pillowy footstool. And that would be the enemies of the Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a poof for your feet. An ottoman, a footstool. Hey, in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua and the Israelites, they defeated five armies of the Amorites on what was an unusually long day. You can read the story, Joshua 10. But in verse 24, it tells us, When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on the necks. And Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies whom you fight. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And so his enemies as footstools, this speaks of the last gasp of rebellion. This speaks of them being put down. It really leads us all the way to to the second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now that almost sounds like like God's just going to do it and Jesus is just going to hang out until it happens. Hold that thought. The enemies made a footstool. This is after the kingdom age. This comes after final judgment. You see, God's offer for Jesus to take a seat at His right hand is not a kick your shoes off, scratch your feet, chillaxing kind of invitation. This is not for an afternoon nap. This is what's happening currently. This is current with us, at least, again, in earth time. What is going on in the heavens with Jesus is He is sitting at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are made a footstool, which means His enemies are still at large. His enemies are still attacking. They're still trying to undermine the work of God. Well, what's Jesus doing with His feet kicked back and up? What's that all about? It's not passive. Not in the least. Understand that to sit at God's right hand signifies the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ. It signifies power. It signifies the seat where the strength comes from. And this is the rule of Jesus. Get this, note this. It's the rule of Jesus right now into and through the entire kingdom age. Sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 1 Corinthians 15.23 says each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
He must reign. Where's he reigning from? The right hand of the throne of God. He's reigning and he's ruling even now will continue as He comes to reign and to rule, will rule and reign through the kingdom age of a thousand years. We just studied these things, and if you didn't hear them, go back and listen to the Revelation series. And then, then, it'll be done. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's chosen, God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, note this, who also intercedes for us. This is a busy seat. This is an active rule and reign. And He is seated because the blood work is done. He he sat down because the work of sacrifice. Oh, we'll get there in a moment. But the work of sacrifice is taken care of. This is an active throne. Right now, He is interceding, He's sanctifying, and He's ruling in His servants today. And He will reign over all the earth in the coming millennial kingdom. Now, there are three quotes in Psalm 110 that are all Yahweh speaking to Yeshua. They're all God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord speaking to my Lord throughout. And they're in verse 1, where He says... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 2, at the end of the verse, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then finally, verse 4, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those three are all Father speaking to Son. The Lord says to my Lord. I just have those three highlighted to stand out. This is God speaking to God, to Jesus. And in these declarations, He ordains... Two roles that will belong exclusively to Christ the Messiah. And note these, we're going to follow this through now. The role of king and the role of priest. And then David prophetically ascribes a third role, describes it to us toward the end of the psalm, which is now, number three, a warrior. A conquering warrior. So we have king, we have priest, and we have warrior. Let's begin with the first one. Role number one. The King of Kings, verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. So again, the enemies are present. Rule in the midst. The enemies are not gone. Rule in the midst. There are still battles that must take place. There's still fighting that must go on. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And the word rule in the Hebrew can also be translated tread, which I like. Tread in the midst of your enemies. Enemies, silent, sulking, surreptitious enemies. See, even in the millennial kingdom, that time of Jesus' rule and reign from Jerusalem on planet earth, when that rule will be perfect, things will be restored on the earth. The environmentalists will be thrilled because everything will be back to its Eden-like status. But when He rules and reigns, there will yet be enemies in the kingdom. Enemies present there. We know because at the end of the thousand years, read it in Revelation 20, there's a massive rebellion. The enemies at that time will not be so overt. But there will be that, like I said, silent, sulking, surreptitious enemies 
Those who are aware of Jesus at the time know that He rules and reigns, but they sit there and they go, eh. Go worship in Jerusalem. It's costing me a lot of money to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Got to do that. I don't want anybody to rule over me. I want to rule over... You know, that's going to be going on in dark places of the heart. But the strong scepter will rule. By the way, the strong scepter already does rule if He's in your heart. He's already King of Kings over those who have given over their lives to Him. Is He not? Your king? Is he your king? In fact, this morning it might be good just to talk about how is your receptivity to his rule? What do you mean? I mean, how open are you to doing what he wants you to do versus what you want to do? I say this to myself. Trust me, I hear my own words coming out of my big old head. How receptive, Rick, are you to doing things his way rather than your way? And it can be a very subtle little thing where the enemy whispers and my pride rises up or my, my own ego gets in the way and I start to want to go my way. I want to, this is how it needs to be. This is what we need to do. And the Lord says, have you asked me? How about if I say to do it this way? The Lord said to my Lord, reign, he is king. How receptive are you? to His rule, and to living life the way He's asked us to live it. Not surprisingly, David maps the exact location of Messiah's royal throne on earth. It is in Zion. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Joel 3.16 tells us the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. And Paul wrote in Romans 11.26, So all Israel will be saved just as it is written, Isaiah 59.20, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. One of the reasons that David was such a man after God's own heart was David went places, did things, and loved things that God loved. Things that God did. Places God desired were what David desired. David loved Zion. And when he captured the stronghold of Zion, it was for a long time, you'll see this morning, for a long, long time, Zion was on David's heart. At that time it was called Jebus. Home of the Jebusites. But David was aware of Jebus early on. Before he rose to the throne, before he set his rule, David saw Jebus as this amazing location. What was it that drew him to Jebus? which is originally called in Genesis 14, Salem, which is Jerusalem. What drew his attention there? David was a man after God's own heart. David loved the things that God loved. And God had already chosen Zion. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 3, read on. Your people, still speaking of the King of Kings, who will rule in the midst of His enemies, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. This is a brand new day. This is the day we've longed for. 
It's a brand new day the moment He enters your heart. But it's also a brand new day the moment He sets foot on the earth again. This is a a new day. I I want to back into the verse. So start at the end of the verse with each sentence one at a time. Verse 3, your youth are to you as the dew. His youth includes all those of the fellowship of the born again. You know, there's something about being born again makes you young again. It puts a light back in your eyes. And I don't care if you're 13 or 83. When you are born again, you come to life. New life has begun. You are among the youthful. What a remarkable, wonderful thing. The fellowship of the born again. Your youth are yours. They're like the dew. Young and fresh and sparkling. Like the earliest and first dew of the early morning dawn. He says, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. In holy array, that is, they're robed in righteousness. What we wear, fine linen, bright and clean, Revelation 19, which are the righteous acts of the saints. But what we wear, that righteousness has been given to us. We're wrapped in that robe. Isaiah says this, holy array. And then he says, in the day of your power. In the day of your power. Note this, the word power isn't just uh, influence or energy. The word power here in the Hebrew is also translated host, army, or mighty force. What's happening here? In holy array. In the day of your mighty host. In holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as to the dew. And a people are being described here. Who's being described? Listen to it. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 14 says, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. And in verse 16 it says, On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, this is that day. What He's talking about, what He describes in Psalm 110 verse 3, that's the day. The day of the return, when He comes back with this mighty force, this holy host, robed in fine linen, righteousness, riding with Him, returning with Him. And this time, when the King of Kings comes back, He's on a valiant steed, not on a little donkey. And His people, His people follow after Him, ride with Him. We just got done talking about this. I can't let it go. I'm still ready to saddle my horse. Let's ride. This is that day that he is describing here in verse 3. But but don't get cocky, Christians. Don't get out ahead of ourselves. Or as Paul said, Romans eleven eighteen, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You see, verse 3 is also a very Jewish picture. It's not just the church, the born again. It's, it's Israel born again. It's, it's the Jews coming to faith in Jesus. It's, it, they're part of this whole picture, this whole deal. But what do you mean? Note the very first two words of verse 3. Your people. Now, understand, we are His people. I, I don't deny that. 
follower of Jesus, a Christian born again. I have been added into the family. I have been grafted into the olive tree. I'm part of the deal now. Marvelous, wonderful. But your people is a Jewish way of saying the Jews. Your people will volunteer freely. And this whole thing is is so Israelite. What do you mean? This isn't a call to sign up for the nursery, okay? Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Lord, send your power because we need volunteers. This isn't ministry sign up Sunday. Which, by the way, we need to do that because there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done around here. So, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. It's not about signing up. That word volunteer is... It's not the best actual translation... Your people will volunteer freely. I want you to note this. Be very aware of this. It's important. Volunteer freely is nedabot. Nedabot. And if you're a note taker, just write N-E-D-A-B-O-T. Nedabot. And it literally translates, and every Jewish mind would see this instantly, your people are a free will offering. Your people are a free will offering. If you go back to Leviticus, which, Lord willing, we will, and you begin to read through the first five chapters, what you see is all the offerings that are prescribed by God for Israel. And every one of them is is specific and individualistic, and each one of them are cameos of Jesus. They all point to the Christ. But among those offerings is this free will offering. And the way it's described is if a person just wanted to come to the Lord, just wanted to come and spend a day in worship, they didn't come and bring a sin offering, that was a different requirement, or a burnt offering, well, that was a different requirement, or a grain offering or a guilt offering. No, they could just come of their own free will and bring the free will offering. That's the one of the five offerings. It's just up to the worshiper. Anytime you want. I love that. God doesn't limit our worship. And with Israel, He gave four or five different ways they could bring worship. He gave them holidays and festivals in which to worship. But He also invited them, anytime you want, my door is open to you. Come and bring an offering. Come and worship me and worship with me. For the free will offering is also called a peace offering. Peace offering. It was an offering that was freely given and shared in the presence of the Lord. Peace between myself and my God. And the way it was set up is you would offer it and then you had to eat it that day. So you had to stay there. And and, and share a picnic, lunch with the Lord. A barbecue with the Father. He'd take some for the offering and you'd have some with your family. and, And it would be an extinction of this time of worship. You know, when we do fellowships, like we had hot dog Sunday last week. Hot dogs. That would have been burned up in the fire like that. But we had hot dogs and people hung out and fellowship and a lot of people really enjoyed it and had a good time. But the thing is, our worship didn't stop with the amen of the final prayer of that morning service. And I think as Christians, it would be wise for us to begin to grasp that, that our worship extends into our fellowship, that we invite the Lord into our times of joy together, that we don't dismiss Him when we are dismissed. But we continue this. And that's the idea behind this this free will offering, this peace offering. It also had another name. We could just call it Thanksgiving. I just feel like thanking the Lord. 
I just, I'm so at peace with the Lord. And of my own choice, my own free will, I want to offer to the Lord. So Leviticus chapter 7 verse 15 says, As for the flesh of the sacrifice of His thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of His offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. You are to dine with the divine. Stick around, the Lord would say. Have this meal freely shared. And it's wonderful because it's, it's a want to, right, Less, Not a have to. It's a get to. I just, I just want to. And the Lord says, great, here's how. And note that it is fully realized in the day of His power. So literally, verse 3, your people will be free will offerings in the day of your power. Prophetically speaking, that's the day Jesus comes. That's the day He sets foot on the earth. His people will be free will offerings. We will serve at His good pleasure. We will go where He says and we'll do what He says and we'll be there for Him and we will be free will offerings of the Lord God, of Jesus Christ, in the day of His power. Prophetically, but practically? Practically, it is the day He becomes the King of your heart. When you give your life to Jesus, you have just chosen to become a free will offering. You are Nidabot. I want the t-shirt. Nidabot. What exact, what's that? It's like a new brand or something? No, it just means free will offering. The Nidabot. Because where the king of hearts rule, that's what his subjects become. This is all part of, am I open to what my king tells me to do? Am I going to live a life that's based on His will rather than my will? Well, if my life is His, then my life becomes nedebot, a free will offering. This is what Paul was talking about, Romans 12.1, when he said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Nedebot, a free will offering, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Man, the King comes into your heart. The king has a day. You're born again. You're fresh and new and young with him. And you become a free will offering in your very life. We just live to serve. And we find great joy in that service. It's not as I've said before, well, I live to serve. I serve in my church. I've got work to do. Man, if you can't find joy in it, don't do it here. Several other churches I can point you to that might like that kind of service. (laughs) Paul said in Philippians 2.17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You know what that means? A drink offering? They would pour the the wine out on the altar and it would just go... And it would evaporate. And Paul's saying, even if my life evaporates in the service of you, my joy, that's what makes my joy full. Just let my life be of use to others. Let my life evaporate into the kingdom of God. So the free will offering. That's what we're called to be when the king becomes king of your heart. When the king comes to rule and reign, we will all be nedabot for Jesus. And it's called the peace and the thank offering Listen, because peace and thanksgiving flood the lives of those who freely give themselves. You want to find true... This is the best way to live as a Christian. You want to find true joy and peace and be filled with thanksgiving? Offer yourself freely to Jesus and see what He does.
The second God-ordained role for Messiah, first His King of Kings, secondly, the Great High Priest, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God doesn't mix politics and religion. He's wise in that no king could be a priest and no priest could sit on the throne. That was God's standard. This is the way it works. Two kings of Israel directly challenged this standard and possibly a third. But two that I I know for certain, the first one happened in 1 Samuel 13 with Israel's very first king. People were fearing an onslaught of a Philistine attack. And King Saul called on Samuel, the prophet priest, to meet him at Gilgal and to offer up offerings to the Lord and to try to encourage the people, for their hearts were failing. They were hiding out in in crags and in rocks and in caves and they were running like, like bunnies away from these Philistines who were flooding in and threatening their very survival. So King Saul, he's there at Gilgal and he's waiting He's waiting. Samuel's just not coming. You ever wait for a pastor and he just doesn't come? He just doesn't show up? Where is that guy? And King Saul got impatient. And King Saul said, give me that. And he impatiently offered up a burnt offering, which was not his right to do. And in fact, note this, it was step one of two in Saul completely losing his throne. 1 Samuel 13, 13, Samuel finally shows up and he says to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was king of Israel, but he did not allow the Lord to be king of his heart. So he went and did things his way. He was going to pull it together. He was going to see his people saved. And Samuel said, you have acted foolishly. And then there was King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was a good king. He rose to the throne at the age of 16. I can't even imagine. 16 years old on the throne, he ruled in Jerusalem 52 years. He was a powerful king. He was strong. He was good. He was very successful in in driving back Israel's enemies. He built these machines of war. We don't even know exactly what they were. There in Jerusalem, he had quite an arsenal, built up his army. Israel was strong under the watch of Uzziah until it all went to his head. Uzziah entered the temple and he went in to offer his own incense to the strong objections of the chief priest Azariah and 80 other priests. They're all there trying to hold him back. Don't do this. Don't do this, Uzziah. Well, Second Chronicles 26.19 says Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. How dare you talk to me that way? Be careful. Be careful any time with anyone that thought rises up in your mind. How dare you talk to me that way? As if you're so important. How dare you speak to the senior pastor of the Bridge Fellowship with, with, with such petulance? 
don't you know who I am? And your laughter tells you, you do know who I am. That's beside the point. Man, be careful with pride. Be careful when you're in a position and you start to call, you have no right to talk to me. You know what? Anybody can talk to me any way they want. I'm just a servant. How dare you talk to Jesus that way? Okay, I'll, I'll back that one up. Don't come to the Lord like that. As far as I go. But Uzziah, he was so angry. Second Chronicles 26.19 says, While he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And the king who would be priest became a leper to the very day of his death. Life really rots when I force my own way. (laughs) Do you know why the leper failed his driving test? He left his foot on the brake. Anyway, um, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. But I, I... Don't get me started on the leper jokes. It's not It's not good. The king who would be priest becomes a leper. Understand? I, I never saw this before. Listen, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 tells us something very interesting. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. There is only one who can sit on the throne in the temple of God. There is only one who can be king and priest at the same time. And it's fascinating that Isaiah calls that out. That that's when he saw the Lord exalted. The Lord who is king. The king of kings. And the Lord who is, by the way, the great high priest. Seated on his throne in the temple. Who's seated on the throne? Who's seated at the right hand of God? It's Jesus. I saw the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died. Because here's a man who was trying to be king and priest. There's only one. There is only one. Let me say it again. There is only one. Who can handle both rule and righteousness. Who can bear up under majesty and holiness. The position of king and priest. Now listen. Because any honest Jew would have to struggle with Yeshua being high priest. It's a fair question. This would be a Jesus kind of a question. How can it be? How can, first of all, if Jesus is Messiah, how can even Messiah be both king and priest? It would be a real struggle because there was a division. Judah was the line of the kings. Levi was the line or the tribe of the priests. They were absolutely separated and had to be separated. According to the law. And so a thinking Jew would say, how could Messiah be both? How is this even possible? And then God writes it down in Psalm 110 to clear it all up. You see, again, only Levites could be priests. And Jesus, well, He was of Judah. But also, no king could be priest. But God foresaw all that, declaring His Messiah's priesthood to be of a different order. It's not the Levitical order. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. That's pretty definite. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not the order of Aaron. Don't worry about the Aaronic priesthood. That's not what we're talking about here. 
We're talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood. A different order. A higher order. An order that is far greater. What about Melchizedek? What about this guy? If you've heard the name, interesting, enigmatic king who, Genesis 14, he came out from Salem, Jerusalem. First mention of Salem in the Bible is when Melchizedek comes out from Salem. Salem means peace. He's king of peace. He comes out of Salem. He meets Abram as Abram is returning from a valiant rescue of his nephew Lot and and all of his people. He defeats five kings in a battle of kings and, and he's coming back from that with all the spoils of war and this victory and no doubt overwhelmed by it. In fact, I know he was because right after this, God had to say to Abram, don't fear Abram, I'm your shield. But as he's coming back from this battle, out from Salem comes this curious, mysterious king, Melchizedek. And he greets Abram. And he brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine. And and he shares this with him. And then Abram worships him. Bows down before him. Offers up a tithe of all that he had just gotten out of the war. Of all the spoils of war he gives in worship to Melchizedek. You can turn over there or just listen. I'm going to read it pretty quick here. But Hebrews chapter 6 gets into this as the Hebrew writer is looking for one of the more challenging biblical passages to challenge his listeners to be more biblically literate because the Hebrew pastor is recognizing he wants to talk about Melchizedek but people are somewhat illiterate many are not even going to know who Melchizedek is but he talks about him anyway Hebrews 6.19 he says this hope we have as an anchor of the soul A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. So there's a reference. For this Melchizedek, chapter 7, he says, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. Note that, king and priest. Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. He was first of all, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Skip down to verse 17. For it is attested of him, Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Attested to who? Jesus, my Lord, Adonai. It's attested of him. And then down in verse 21, that continues on. That he, with an oath, and through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. 
That's the priesthood of Messiah. Not a Levitical priesthood, not a priesthood based in the law of Moses, which is a conditional law, a limited and one-time law to a group of people. Jesus is pre-law. You recognize that. Melchizedek came long before the law was given by Moses. Melchizedek showed up to Abraham. He's pre-law. So he's not part of this order of priesthood. It's a completely different order. The order of Melchizedek, it's a perpetual order, which means it's an eternal order. And that's how Jesus, who is a king in the line of Judah, can be king and priest. Because Jesus preceded both Levi and the law. And he's the guarantee of a better covenant. You know what's so interesting is even Levi, and the Hebrew pastor gets into this, even Levi Levi and the tribe of Levi and all the priests of Levi bowed down to Melchizedek. How'd they do that? In the loins of Abraham. It's a great picture to understand. All who would come out of Abraham bowed down to this king, this priest, this Melchizedek, who is, again, a strange and enigmatic character. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. See, that's part of the sitting down too. Like I said earlier, the blood work is done. The offering is done. The priestly service finished. That part of the job is over. And so now he sits down to rule and reign his priesthood secure. Now, someone might say, wait a minute. I thought you said the role of king and priest could only be held by one and only belongs to Jesus. Yeah. Well, then what about Melchizedek? Who existed thousands of years before Jesus walked on the planet? Wasn't he a king and priest before Jesus? We're going to talk about this more when we get to Genesis 14. We're going to chew on this a bit. But I will give you this glorious prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices, king of kings and great high priest. And Jesus Christ is both, and this tiny little glorious psalm declares it. 3,000 years ago. And again, I think it's interesting, pinpointed halfway into human history, this massive revelation King of kings, great high priest, and finally, we got to finish here, role number three, the warrior judge. The warrior who comes to judge, verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Is this God or is this Jesus? Yes. This is the Lord Jesus in His return. Every one of these. This is the warrior king, the Lord. He, His, He, He, and He are all Jesus in verses 5 and 6. But note the order of the psalm. Think about this. First, first in the psalm comes the inauguration of the King of Kings. Along with the great high priest. That's first. Then comes the warrior judge. King first, 
priest first and then judge with a long interval in between. As of today, king and priest. The warrior hasn't come yet. The judge is yet to return. Right now he's sitting at the right hand as king and priest, but he will come, the warrior judge. By the way, Psalm 2 follows the exact same pattern. If you read that, Psalm 2 verse 6 says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then after that, Psalm 2 verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. What I'm saying is this, first comes grace and mercy. Then comes judgment. First comes love and sacrifice. And then comes the end. First comes the king of kings who would be the king of hearts. And with that, the great high priest who freely offered himself as the sacrifice. By the way, he's the only priest that did that. All the other priests offering up animals. Pagan priests even offering up babies and human lives. This is the only priest who said, I'll put myself on the altar for your sake. King of kings, ruling in hearts, great high priest who sacrificed himself for me. That comes first. But then the warrior judge. Then the warrior judge returns to put down sin and rebellion. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Wow. This is a great picture. Most commentators agree, believe that verse 7 is speaking of that moment when the warrior judge, who is also great high priest and king of kings, when he returns. But what happens here, what's described here is they say, this is when he pauses in his Armageddon march to Jerusalem. To track these things, it looks like, according to scriptures, he sets down in Basra, where his people are. He makes his way up to Megiddo and the Battle of Armageddon. And from there, he comes and sets foot on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives splits and, and all heaven breaks loose. But in that march, that's what many think is going on here. He will drink from the brook by the wayside that is on the way. He's on his way. He's on the march. He's, he's going and he pauses for a moment, ever vigilant, eyes to the battle. He pauses to scoop up some water and to head on in the battle. And what's so cool about that picture is he's perfectly calm. This warrior judge, already established king of kings and great high priest, he's in the way to battle. He's on the way and he pauses to fill the canteen. And he's completely in control. And he's utterly at peace, even though he comes to rule and to wage war on his enemies. But I want to end with this. I've got to make another suggestion. As to what verse 7 is really saying. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Who wrote this psalm? David. Let's try it all together. Who wrote this psalm? Okay, it's not a trick question. (laughs) David wrote the psalm. David went down into a brook in the Elah Valley. 1 Samuel 17. says he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
They have words. And down in verse 48, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet Jesus, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead. I love the graphics of Scripture. (laughs) It sank into his forehead. And so he fell on his face to the ground. Thus, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath. I can just imagine little David trying to pull that thing out. Huge sword of Goliath. And he killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Down in verse 57 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hands. So, this is just this is so cool. See, we just don't do this anymore. Our warfare is, you know, from we look at it through TV screens. I'm not talking military folk. You guys who have dealt with it on the front lines know how messy it is. But we don't think of that. We watch the cleaned up version. David standing before Saul, victorious over Goliath. I mean, dripping, and it's just gross. This big, huge, hairy head. And the Bible tells us that David carried that head around with him. Just hold it around. He ends up going 18 miles, carrying this head of Goliath, until finally, 1 Samuel 17, 54, it says, Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. At that time, Jerusalem was Jebus. It was not Jerusalem. It belonged to the Jebusites. Yet David, for some reason, recognized he needed to get the head of Goliath, the enemy of God, all the way to what would eventually become the city of David. Okay, so what does that have to do with the psalm? Remember that David wrote it, and David concludes that he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That, my friends, is a very different picture than filling a canteen. (laughs) 2 Samuel 5.7 tells us ultimately that David did capture the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. So taking the head there was looking forward to when he would control that, conquer it. He wasn't even king. In fact, David at that time was not even anointed to be king of Israel. But something in him, I believe the spirit of the living God said, take that head where it belongs. To the seat of my rule. There's a picture being painted here. And I am convinced of it. That he will judge, verse 6, among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up the head. By the way, verse 6 is he will shatter the head over a broad country. The translators make it, he will shatter the chief men over the broad country. But literally, it's he'll shatter the head. And then, verse 7, he will lift up the head. Not his head, but the head. He'll lift up the head. And I believe that we're left with a parallel picture that the son of David will do the same thing that David himself did. Lift up the head. 
Well, I don't like the picture of Jesus lifting up a head. You need to understand then that Jesus is coming as a warrior judge. With perfect poise and calmest composure, the warrior judge, great high priest, king of kings, will put down the enemy and lift up his head. And we know that going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Where the Lord said, the serpent will crush him in the heel. And he did. So the nails went through his feet. But he, the king, priest, warrior, Christ, will crush the serpent's head. He will lift up his head. Now whatever you want to do with verse 7, I'll leave to you. Road to Armageddon, sipping water in the stream, or lifting up the enemy's head. Either way, it is a chilling way to end the psalm. If you're an enemy of Messiah, if you are set against God, if you're set against Jesus Christ, this psalm is disturbing. So where are you this morning? Where do you stand? Do you stand for the King? Ah, oh, Rick, I don't, I don't like how this ended. I like the more gentle grace endings of sermons. Well, then let me read to you once again verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Let me speak momentarily here to Christians. Right now, brothers and sisters in Christ, you may sense a lot of enemies in the world. You may sense a lot of things going wrong, a lot of unrighteousness, a lot of sin, even that seeps in and affects us and we don't want to do the things that we do. And like Paul, we feel like wretched people sometimes. But we recognize who the King is. We know who is Lord. And it's not a politician. And it's not a priest or a pastor. There is none other but Jesus Christ who is both King and Priest. And He rules and He reigns even in the midst of His enemies. Even where everything looks like it's going wrong or going to hell in a handbasket, He rules. And so your part in all of this, my part, let Him rule in my heart. Do what He tells me to do. Be a free will offering. Live the way He wants me to live. That's, that's what I'm called to. And I don't have to worry about the enemies because He's ruling even in the midst of them. And by the way, what is He doing there at the right hand of the throne of God? Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. What do you live for? You know what Jesus lives for right now? To pray for you. He just lives for it. In the morning, He's praying for you. In the evening, He's praying for you. Through the night, He's praying for you. He lives to pray for His people. So followers of Jesus Christ, do not be dismayed. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, He first is King and Priest. Right now, He is King and Priest. He is the King who wants to rule in your heart. He is the priest who sacrificed Himself for you so that you can live forever. That's today. That's this morning. He's coming as the warrior judge. How you are with Him at that time depends on what you do with Him right now. Choose Him to be your Lord. Give over your life to Him. 
and you too will be saved. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is is stirring to me. I love to hear of You, Jesus, and Your coming. I love to read these things and to recognize though we finished studying Revelation oh, six weeks ago, You were talking about these things 3,000 years ago in the psalm. You declared the destruction of the enemy's head 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. Thank You, Lord. And thank You for Your encouragement to us of the power and the glory and the nature of Jesus. And I just want to say very clearly this morning for all my sin and all my failure, all my foolishness, Father, You are my King. Jesus, You are my Lord. And Jesus, You are the great High Priest. I recognize that You died on the cross to save me from my sin. And You rose again, conquering sin and death. And You ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Thank You, Jesus. And I want to just pray, Lord, if there's anyone among us this morning fearful of the enemy, frightened of what's going on in our world, terrified because of the enemies in our midst, would You just again remind us of Your rule. This all ends with You. You conquer all. You establish righteousness. You are coming. Build up, Father. Build up and comfort Your people with that truth. And for anyone who struggles with belief, Father, I pray that this prophetic psalm would secure faith. If there's anyone here among us who has yet to choose Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray a moment wouldn't pass until that happens. May it happen right now. And if that's you, I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I receive you as King of my heart. I believe that you died and you rose again. I believe that you sit at the right hand of God and I'm asking you to pray for me. I'm asking you to save me and to forgive me and to make me one of your own. Lord, we all want to be with you when it all comes down and when we all go up. So I ask this morning that your spirit would move among us to secure our place in your kingdom, in your family, and under your lordship and reign. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you want to receive Jesus as Lord, if you just need to pray and come before Him, you can do that while we worship Him.